Hello. Hello. Testing, testing, one, two, three. The listening post, here's Yanola. Raise your hand if you knew we had a theme song. Oh my God, that's a good throwback. I love that song. What is it? Once upon a time in New Orleans, the listening post started and we worked with this really amazing local uh, artist, Jacques Dufour, and he built the first listening posts, which were the recording devices we put up at libraries and um, businesses, barbershops. But he also had a band and uh, we commissioned him to write a theme song for the radio show. Welcome to the first ever audio version of the Listening Post Collective newsletter. I am your MC, Jesse Harden. And here in the Zoom studio, I have with me the hardest working team in the journalism development business. If you all could say your name, where you are, and what you're staring at at your window right now. Hi, everybody. Um, this is Carolyn Powers. I'm the program manager at the Listening Post. Right now, I am staring out at a beautiful lake in upstate New York, um, sitting at my grandparents' cottage. It's on a tiny, tiny lake in Berlin. So happy to be here. Sounds, uh, sounds idyllic. It is idyllic. I escaped the heat in DC. Um, hi everyone, I'm Vera Sal Hernandez. I am the Program Associate for Listening Post or US Programs at Internews. And I am sitting in my breakfast nook in Washington, DC, and I am looking at some trees, probably the only trees in the city. Hi, this is Olivia Henry, I'm a consultant for the Listening Post Collective and Internews, and I'm here in Sacramento, looking out at the leafy streets of Midtown near the Capitol. I asked you guys to bring some audio that kind of reflects the last few months of our lives here, stuck, stuck in our little worlds. Uh, I'm going to start with some audio that you shared with me, Carolyn. Can you hear that? Yeah. Oh, I can hear it. As I said, I'm at my grandparents' camp, and this is a place where my extended family has brought everything that they don't want in their own homes uh, to our family camp for the past 30 plus years. And so that is a clock that goes off every hour and plays us a nice little instrumental tune, one of which happens to be, um, my heart will go on. And so, my God, that is what happens every hour in this quiet camp. <laughs> uh, I I wish I could say I hated it. I don't I don't hate it as much as you would think. <laughs> Marisol, you sent me two sound bites. They sound similar, but they could not be more different. Um, one of them is the sounds from traffic that I can hear from my apartment in DC. And the other one is from my hometown in Wyoming, um, where I'm riding on a boat um, in the Grand Teton National Park. So very different places, but similar sounds. 
You were smart. You escaped right at the beginning of the pandemic back to Wyoming, right? I did. I was very lucky to go home. Um, and I'm from somewhere that's really beautiful. So I was able to spend a lot of time outdoors. Yeah. Our, our Monday morning meetings were a little difficult as Carolyn and I hadn't <laughs> left our homes in weeks and Marisol was coming back from 20 mile bike rides and boat trips. But it's all been equalized. Now you're stuck too, right? Yes, now I'm stuck in the middle of the city. Olivia, where you've had a diversion um, during the last few months, something that, that you like doing. What is it? I keep um, between five and seven beehives in the Sierra foothills. Agriculture related travel was exempted, so I didn't feel bad about driving up toward the Sierra. You need to be there regularly, so you, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a normal part of life. I will end with my audio here. That's the youngest member of the Listening Post family, Rio. Her abuela reminded me recently that the word in Spanish uh, for hiccups, which she does a lot of, you can hear in that audio, is hipo. So I've started calling her Little Epo. Well, we're excited to share with you some great interviews from different folks we're working with around the country. Carolyn, who did you talk to this month? I had the opportunity to talk to Nicole Pritchard, who is a program officer for the James Irvine Foundation. And we've worked with Nicole for the past few years on a couple different projects in California, specifically looking at information ecosystems. And I was super excited to chat with her just about her work in philanthropy, what changes we've seen just over the past few months. I talked to April Alonso and Irene Romulo, who are the heads of Cicero Independiente in Illinois. And we had a great conversation about community media and its importance um, in reaching the Latinx community. I talked to Jamila Harris, who's a longtime radio DJ and community media reporter in Fresno. So Nicole, introduce yourself. Who are you? What do you do? And how do we know each other? Yes, thanks for having me, Carolyn. I'm Nicole Pritchard. I'm a program officer for the James Irvine Foundation, and we are a private statewide foundation in California um, with a North Star goal for a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. And so I support what we call our Priority Communities Initiative which is a seven-year, $135 million initiative that's focused in five cities in California, Fresno, Salinas, Riverside, San Bernardino, Stockton. Um, and we have an aim to create local economies that work for all residents. And my specific work focuses on the Inland Empire region, which is San Bernardino and Riverside. Um, and then I also serve on our impact assessment and learning team, which focuses on fostering learning opportunities, both inside and outside of the foundation, and which aims to assess Irvine's progress toward its goals. 
months. How have you been? What have the last four months been like for you personally? <laughs> oh, girl. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's easy to be overwhelmed with emotions right now. I'm mentally and physically exhausted, like I think so many people are, just trying to keep my kids' spirits up. They're stuck at home, away from school, friends, their normal life. Um, my niece who lives with us, you know, wasn't able to attend her high school graduation ceremony, which is really devastating, I think, for teens. Mm. So, and honestly, I there's just kind of a, a deep sadness about the events that led up to civil unrest. Um, as a black woman, I know full well that racism is alive and kicking, but it still just hurts to see it replayed in the media, even though it's so, so important to have these conversations. And I think there's just a sense of anxiety that's kind of always bubbling right below the surface because you don't know what's coming. You feel like you're always looking over your shoulder, like, is it COVID? Is it racism? Is it something else coming to get you? Um, so, you know, I think I'm just trying to fight through these emotions to stay positive for my kids. Um, but there are there are some things that are happening right now that are really giving me hope. I'm feeling really uplifted by by my work and motivated to do what I do. I'm feeling inspired by the young people that are stepping up and leading the way forward. And I'm feeling hopeful that maybe now enough people are ready to to change the world because mm. now is the time when we need to build a new economic system and a new society where that benefits for all residents. How has the James Irvine Foundation responded to COVID, to Black Lives Matter, the declining economic situation with you, which you all are super involved with facing? Um, so looking back on the last few months, what work or investments are you most proud of and how has um, the James Irvine Foundation been positioning itself to kind of move forward? Mm -hmm. Well, Irvine holds equity as one of our core values. We try and base all of our work around this value of equity. Um, so Irvine leadership has moved quickly to identify some funds to support what's happening right now. In June, our board approved $20 million to support efforts to end anti-Black racism and to advance racial equity in California. That's over the next 18 months. And so alongside of that, we're planning to develop a strategy for longer term and deeper support around racial equity efforts in both our grant making, but also internally in how we operate as a foundation. And then, you know, we know that the economic fallout from COVID it's going to be severe still to be seen what's going to come, um, but we know or we have a good sense that it's going to disproportionately affect Californians who are already struggling to make ends meet. So um, the foundation also committed $22 million to help a, quarter, a cohort of our grantees um, through a few different ways. One was through emergency uh, response funding. Another was to provide technical assistance for financial planning and recovery. And then the third way was around um, longer term strategic response grants that support recession resilience for the what we assume will be the impending recession. How do you see the future of philanthropic supported journalism? Um, it's quite a trendy issue 
and focus right now for philanthropy, but do you see philanthropy investing in journalism in the long term? I do, and I will say I had a conversation with our communications team to gauge their thoughts on philanthropy and journalism as well. Um, I think philanthropy has, over the recent years, been stepping up more to support journalism. And, you know, we don't know what's going to happen post-pandemic, but it seems as though there's going to be an even greater need for philanthropy to increase support. Um, And I think more and more foundations are seeing journalism as a public good, as something that needs to be supported in order to improve civic society. So Irvine has been investing in journalism in different ways over the years, and we're still trying to figure out how our resources can continue to continue to support quality information um, as it relates to our North Star, which again is a California where all low-wage workers have the power to advance economically. So I don't necessarily see it as an issue that's just a fad, but it still remains to be seen the way that philanthropy steps up to support journalism in the long term. Yeah, definitely. Um, This is for all of our, our partners that are listening to this podcast. Do you have any advice for small newsrooms looking to secure philanthropic grants? Um, while each foundation operates on their own terms, I think if small news outlets are able to establish 501c3 nonprofits, that makes it easier for foundations to provide support. Um, I, I think that larger foundations typically make bigger grants to bigger organizations. That's often how it plays out. So reaching out to community foundations, family foundations might be a good first step for the smaller media outlets. I think also um, collaborations are important when possible, where different outlets maybe can receive funding by sharing um, editorial control or content on a different, on a specific topic area. So those are a few ideas. That's good advice, thanks. April Alonso, um, I, I'm enjoying the air conditioner right now. But I'm probably gonna go outside too to enjoy the heat because then it gets too cold in the house. The air conditioner. Yeah. And my name is Irene Romulo. I'm doing pretty well today. Um, feeling the heat, but it feels nice. So we started Cicero Independiente last year, and we did our big launch event in July. So we're going to be coming up on our one-year anniversary. And since then, we've focused a lot on writing uh, different uh, stories from, like, trying to hold our local government accountable to informing community residents about uh, the coronavirus and where to get services, where to get tested, and are also doing stories where we highlight the great things that community members here in Cicero are doing. And all of our stories are, are bilingual. 
And we also recently started a fellowship program for young people who are interested in journalism, young people of color. So that, you know, it's where three weeks in and that's just our commitment to ensuring that there's more opportunities for young people of color to get involved in telling their their own stories and meeting the information needs of our community. We are people who are living in the community that we're writing about and just how our neighbors are being impacted by COVID-19, you know, and just like the environmental injustices that have, you know, increased the risk for the people living here, we're affected by that as well. And so are our family members. So for me, it's been hard to you know, deal with that on a personal level and still like be a wanting to ensure that our, our community at a larger level is informed and that we're getting uh, our needs met and the resources that we need. Um, because, you know, I live here too. Do you have anything fun planned out for your first year anniversary? We were planning to do the drive, wasn't that, wasn't that what that was? The, the drive-in was supposed to be for like our launch? We wanted to have a film screening again. Um, we, we had a launch event where we screened a documentary that one of our uh, co-founders worked on. So we kind of wanted to replicate the same thing, uh, but we won't be able to do that, which is okay, you know, shifts plan. Um, so now we got to figure out another fun way to celebrate the work <laughs> that we've been able to do. Right. That's a good question and a good reminder. I had not thought about it. <laughs> Do you feel that as you've shifted um, sort of what you were doing, have you written a story um, or seen a story in the news that really resonated with you or, or you think that resonated with other people? The one on the site that resonated with that was the story that I didn't have wrote. It was an op-ed piece about like, because the town had came out saying that people in Cicero have higher number of cases because it was like we speak Spanish or like because we live in households that are like have a lot of people but that wasn't it um, so like even this piece was like criticizing that and I feel like a lot of people responded to that because they resonated with that in the community. That was an important piece for me to write um, because like I wanted to highlight the systematic factors that have led to increased rates of COVID-19 in like Latinx communities like Cicero and shift the blame away from blaming us as individuals for our actions, but rather like taking a look at, yeah, the, the systematic inequalities that, you know, help to increase the risk that we face and increase the number of people who are dying um, from this. So that, that's why that piece was important for me. But at the same time, like April has been working on highlighting, uh, you know, people from the community, especially young people who, you know, are graduating this year and have had to cancel their graduations. And a lot of them being like first uh, generation, mm-hmm. like the first students in their families who are graduating. So that's also a story that I feel has resonated with a lot of people, just being able to read about and witness uh, the perseverance of young people and their resilience and how, yeah, they they can't have the graduation ceremony that may have wanted, but, you know, they're still finding ways to celebrate their achievements. Mm -hmm. They were hopeful. They had a lot of hope, even though, like, the the pandemic was going on, everything that they were dealing with, like, they had a lot of hope. So it was, like, nice to see, and they were excited. I I saw your Instagram post uh, (laughs) where you highlight different students. Do you think that that has sort of helped the community 
stay as a community as like everything becomes virtual and everyone's like social distancing you highlighting members do you think that has been helpful it got other people excited from like the comments that we see like when like with the high school students like i saw somewhere they're like yeah like they knew the person that was in the photo so they're like yeah go woo-hoo. and then like this other story that we did like there was like moms that were like this was for a different graduation story they were like posting comments like did you see that it is and then like congratulations so I felt like that was like awesome to see like people joining in at the celebration. It was like all through like social media. And it's definitely part of us wanting to keep a, a balance, right? Recognizing mm-hmm. that our community deserves to have more of an accurate portrayal of who we are and we care about different things and different things are happening in our lives, right? We don't just care about one particular issue. Um, And there's a lot of great things that are happening. So we want to make sure to highlight those as well. Um, You know, we're providing information, trying to hold our local government accountable and, you know, uplifting um, the people who live here. When you first started in your newsroom, did you feel that the Latinx community had been portrayed um, in a different way? Or do you feel like you were filling in a gap? And can you speak a little bit to? Like all the the background that I had, like with internships and stuff, like I was noticing that in, in like the newsrooms in Chicago, it was like information only for Chicago residents, it was only English. So I started realizing like, well, why don't I try to like bring that back to where we live like in Cicero and bring it back here instead of trying to go to the city and like serve that population when like I could bring it back here and help fill like just like provide information and have like visibility present in Cicero. Um, You know we've experienced what it means to be Cicero residents and for me part of that experience was noticing that there was a lack of you know independent um, news coverage for Spanish-speaking residents, uh, lack of accountability or lack of transparency in a lot of the decisions that our local government makes. Um, So part of, for me, like founding this organization was like meeting those information needs, like ensuring that there's a space for bilingual community members to, you know, get the information that they need. And you know, before the pandemic, we had hoped to also, you know, and this is still in our future, to create actual physical spaces where people can come together, you know, meet each other, talk about our stories, tell us what we need to do differently, like work together on these things to ensure that one, we're actually meeting, you know, people's information needs, creating things that they want to see. And two, like just to be able to bring us together, share skills and increase uh, or help to strengthen uh, people's participation in the community. What is the outside hangout spot for you in Fresno? Right now? Yeah. During the COVID? Just the backyard. <laughs> at my mom's house or um, at one of my friend's houses. You know, she 
she has her little doughboy pull up and everything. And so um, we do go over there. My name is Jamila Harris, um, also known as Lady J. Uh, I am a local uh, journalist, radio personality, uh, as well as um, an educator. I have uh, been um, in radio or actively hosting a radio show for 14 years. I uh, took a, a hiatus from that to pursue my graduate degree. Um, and since then, um, uh, became interim manager of a local uh, uh, Black-owned uh, community radio station, as well as um, programmer. And um, now transitioning um, to podcasts and some of the other uh, social media outlets. How are you keeping up with all the news that's out there, whether that's about the pandemic or protests? What's been most useful to you to follow local news or national news? Um, uh, social media. Social media is the main uh, way that I get news. I actually haven't had a working uh, TV in my house for probably five years. Um, however, I do watch you know, news clips on social media, news clips, and, um, you know, from time to time at other people's um, homes, but I get so many messages every day of uh, people sending me um, information, uh, reports on COVID and reports on just the civil unrest going on, um, different issues, just getting to the real, getting to the real, you know, and being right there on the ground with people, you know, when I can't be there, but they are there, you know, and they're interviewing people and they're getting the real, the real news. From time to time, I do view the regular um, news, uh, but just to kind of see what they're talking about, just to kind of give it perspective as to what I'm really seeing on the social media. Thinking about that more, maybe traditional journalism as opposed to the citizen and community journalism you're seeing, what are some of the ways that you've seen communities that you're a part of portrayed um, that bothers you? Yes, yes. There are two things. One is the um, narrative of Black-on-Black uh, -black crime. You know, people always say, well, Black people are always upset when the police do something, but what about you? You're killing each other every day, things like that. And, and it's a deflection from the real issues um, that we're talking about, number one. Number two, most of the time, those people are prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law when it's a quote unquote black on black crime. Um, and so what we're talking about is the officers who um, have a duty on behalf of the people to serve the people. We're talking about those people who unjustly kill people um, and then they're not prosecuted. And so those are two very different issues. And then the other thing is how people, they always get on the, um, and they condemn the looters. You know, they say, well, we're all for, we, we are all for peaceful protesting, but we condemn these looters out here and we condemn these people that are burning everything and, and tearing up everything. And, you know, and they, and they differentiate between the protests and the looters. And that's fine. You know, you can do that because chances are most of the protesters that are out there are there to have a peaceful protest. However, 
you cannot, um, I do not feel that you can separate one for the other because what it is, is it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a breakdown of, um, law, you know, it's showing the civil unrest that has occurred. It's showing that, you know, if you can disregard my life, then I can disregard your property, you know? And so I think that they go hand in hand. How does community media journalism make your communities better? Um, because I think it, uh, gives a, it personalizes the issues, um, and, uh, people can empathize more with local people, um, you know, when the person is being interviewed and they see the background and they recognize the background, you know, it personalizes it and it makes them feel a part of it, um, and allows them to be a part of it um by either getting actively involved or even just making comments or just being informed of the issues um uh, but i think that's why it's important because it, it it personalizes it for for us it's not a them thing it's a us a we thing i'm happy to see a lot of people stepping up uh to the challenge um a lot of people voicing their their opinions um a lot of people getting involved. Um, I'm happy to see that. I think social media has allowed that platform for folks. And so you have more and more people stepping up to that, to that plate um, to share information. And so I'm, I'm definitely happy to see that happening. Back in the day, it, it, it was more, it was limited, you know, it was limited because there were only so many spots or slots that a person that you can have. Now anybody can just go on and so I'm happy to see, um, to see that. Um, beyond that, I would just say, I would hope that during this time, people will use this as an opportunity to gain more knowledge, gain more insight, be more empathetic, uh, show more love to people and use this as a, a time to kind of go inward and figure out what it is that we can do to make this life better. Thanks for tuning in. The Listening Post Collective newsletter comes out monthly. We always love hearing from our subscribers with recommendations of journalism projects we should know about, community-focused reporting tools we should try, and whatever else you have on your mind. Send us an email at listeningpostcollective at internews.org. We'll see you in August. Stay cool and be well.